the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with Beth Guckenberger. She's the author of Start With Amen, How I Learned to Surrender by Keeping the End in Mind. We're going to talk about what the word means and how we should think about it and how we use it. We're also going to talk in the five o'clock hour with Christian Roby. He's a political director at uh, Newsbusters, which is a, a arm of the Media Research Center. Um, we're going to uh, talk about a... Uh, New York Times uh, editorial uh, that seems to shift the blame in a way that has since been discredited, but they brought it up again. Well, that's not clear, but we'll talk about it at five o'clock. Rachel Alexander, who writes for the stream, will join us. We're going to talk about some uh, Clinton emails that have uh, recently been uncovered, why it's important, if it is, and what's uh, likely to happen will be the subject of our conversation when she joins us later in the five o'clock hour. Well, as we know, the uh, members of the Republican Party for the team that was going to be playing today and, in fact, is probably playing right now in Washington, D.C., in this matchup between the Democrats and the Republicans on the baseball field um, was disrupted. That uh, practice was disrupted yesterday. Uh, Representative Scalise is still um, considered in critical condition. And, in fact, we heard that the his hip was shattered, but apparently there was much uh, greater damage done and uh, while he's still in critical condition, it's uh, it's not clear whether or not he's going to survive his injuries, and if so, in what shape. So he is still in very uh, serious condition, as is one other individual who was the victim of that shooting. But lawmakers at the scene yesterday at the baseball practice shooting described themselves as sitting ducks, and they said the violence would have been a massacre if not for Majority Whip Steve Scalise's detail. That's spurring new uh, questions over whether congressional security practices should be overhauled. There was a a column uh, that was published by, let me see, I I guess it was uh, Fox News, in which uh, they point out that the political intensity at town halls, for example, um, has been rising and is beyond rising and has been for months. And they literally list dates and the names of members of Congress, both the uh, Democrats and Republicans, some who were candidates, uh, and some of the things that they're hearing uh, at their town hall meetings preceding them and following them by way of threats of violence. And it's it's really escalated uh, to a level that uh, heretofore has not been seen. Well, um, Mr. Scalise, like other members of leadership, is assigned a full time security detail for the U.S. Capitol Police or rather from them. They guard him in Washington and at home in his district. He's in critical condition after being shot in the hip. But his detail was credited with putting down the attacker and saving lives. He's the majority whip. He whips members into shape, if you will. And uh, because he was there, uh, his security detail was there. Had he not been, then the security would not have been there. And uh, as many of the members who were present at that practice, I keep wanting to say rehearsal, but it was a practice, uh, baseball practice, um, they would have been sitting ducks. Um, Representative Dave Bratt, uh, Republican out of Virginia, acknowledged the incident has sparked new security questions for members without assigned police protection at events outside Capitol Hill. 
He, along with several other members, are suggesting the most critical uh, change may be to boost security for large lawmaker gatherings, even informal gatherings like the baseball practice in Alexandria, uh, Virginia. We already had concerns and we have great law enforcement at home. First responders do a great job. But this makes you anticipate every event now in a new way, he said. America's uh, news headquarters was interviewing him earlier in the day. Forty guys get together at the same time. That would be a major security event normally, but I think we got a little excited and didn't think things through as well as we should have or could have. And, of course, this was unprecedented. Uh, Bratt said lawmakers may need to recalibrate public events while also suggesting tighter security at town halls, which most congressional lawmakers have scheduled through the summer recess. Um, this year's town halls uh, to date have been particularly rowdy and tense, prompting lawmakers' concerns long before the shooting on Wednesday. That attack injured Scalise, Matt Milka, a, a lobbyist for Tyson Foods, Zach Barth, a staffer for uh, Texas Representative Roger Williams' office, and two U.S. Uh, Capitol Police officers, Special Agent Crystal Greiner and David Bailey. And without Capitol Hill Police, it would have been a massacre. We had no defense. We have no defense at all. That's a quote from Senator Rand Paul, who was also present. We were like sitting ducks. Well, lawmakers have appealed for more security before, including after the 2011 shooting of then-Representative Gabrielle Giffords. A detail for every lawmaker is not possible, um, likely not possible, or affordable, and security already is provided for major events and lawmakers facing specific threat. But there are broad questions at hand in boosting security beyond that, particularly does it hurt democracy to put an added barrier between lawmakers and constituents, uh, says Mike Doyle, a Democrat out of Pennsylvania, manager of the Democratic Congressional Baseball Team, speaking to reporters. I bet most members of Congress would say they don't want security detail, but for a gathering like that one, perhaps it, it would be um, would be warranted. But that discussion is now uh, revisited in earnest following uh, events of Wednesday. And again, our prayers go out to um, Representative Scalise and others whose uh, injuries have kept them in hospital and whose outcome. I think there's one other who's uh, considered in critical condition. Well, the Washington Post reported Wednesday evening that the firing of FBI Director James Comey has expanded the scope of the special counsel probe of Russian involvement in the election and that President Trump is now himself a target. Now, whether uh, this is accurate, we don't know. We haven't heard from uh, Robert Mueller, who is the special counsel. But this is what The Washington Post has reported. Now, there have been several other major breaking stories that The Washington Post reported that were not accurate. So we don't know. And it hasn't yet been disputed or confirmed. But investigators under special counsel Robert Mueller now are also trying to determine, they say, whether Mr. Trump's dismissal of Mr. Comey constitutes obstruction of justice, according to The Post. To that end, investigators have secured interviews with several top U.S. intelligence agency officials. The Post is reporting. They cite five people brief on the, um, uh, rather citing five people brief on the requests for interviews. The Post said the officials who have agreed to speak to the special prosecutor include Daniel Coates, uh, Admiral Mike Rogers, respectively, the director of national intelligence and the head of the National Security Agency. Trump had received private assurances from the then FBI director, James Comey, starting in January, that he was not personally under investigation. Officials say that changed shortly after Comey's firing, the Post wrote. Well, the New York Times reported similarly later Wednesday evening. In response to the story, Ronna Romney McDaniel, chair of the Republican National Committee, said this unfounded accusation against the president changes nothing. Well, it may change 
change something if, in fact, it's true. There's still no evidence, she went on to say, of obstruction, and current and former leaders in the intelligence community have repeatedly said there's been no effort to impede the investigation in any way, Ms. Romney McDaniel said in a statement that went on uh, to charge the article's sources with criminal activity. The continued illegal leaks are the only crime here. Uh, she said, but the leaks have and will very likely continue. Greg Jarrett points out that the Washington Post is reporting that Robert Mueller is now investigating the the president's um, possible obstruction of justice, examining not only the president's alleged statement to James Comey in their February meeting, but also the firing of the FBI director. If true, he suggests this development makes the argument even more compelling that Mueller cannot serve as special counsel. He has an egregious conflict of interest. He's sort of the mentor of Comey and a very close friend. So that will uh, very likely raise questions about his role as special counsel. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Beck uh, Guckenberger, or maybe it's Guckenberger. I'm not entirely sure. The book is Start With Amen, How I Learned to Surrender by Keeping the End in Mind. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Have uh, one eye poised on the, the news. They're awaiting the first pitch at the congressional game. It's a fundraiser for a number of charities uh, that is about to commence. This is the game uh, for which the Republicans were practicing. The Democrats had practiced earlier. It's the, the Dems against the Republicans. And by the way, uh, the numbers are about even. They've each won the same number of uh, of games each year. It's been uh, carried on, I think, for about 100 years with uh, a few um, breaks in between. Well, nearly 200 congressional Democrats filed a lawsuit Wednesday morning against President Trump, saying his business interests are likely violating the Constitution's emoluments clause by collecting money from foreign governments without permission from Capitol Hill. Now, the whole effort is led by Senator Richard Blumenthal, Representative John Conyers Jr. The lawsuit asks for a federal judge to order Mr. Trump to come to Congress for approval of his business arrangements. Now, he has stepped away from them, but he is still profiting uh, by what others are uh, decisions others are making on his behalf. Well, the lawsuit appears to be an attempt to force Mr. Trump to disclose his business dealings to Congress after the president has refused to release his tax return. This is sort of a roundabout way to get at what they've been looking for for some months. Defendant's refusal to disclose to Congress the foreign emoluments he wishes to accept makes it impossible for plaintiffs to judge whether any specific foreign emolument should be approved, they say in their complaint filed in U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C., Defendant has therefore, and by the way, defendant is the president, has therefore denied plaintiffs the opportunity to decide on a case-by-case basis whether to authorize his acceptance of particular emoluments from foreign states. The Constitution expressly demands that plaintiffs be given that opportunity. Now, the lawsuit runs to 54 pages. The list of 30 senators and 166 House members who joined the suit took up 17 of those pages. Mr. Trump refused to divest himself of ownership of the Trump Organization, a vast network of hotels, golf courses and other properties when he took office. He turned day to day operations over to his children and said he would donate any profits from foreign government patrons of his hotels to the federal Treasury Department. Some legal analysts have questioned whether that's sufficient. 
In their lawsuit, the Democrats list a number of potential violations, including the Chinese government's granting of trademarks to Trump companies, room bookings by diplomats at Trump-branded hotels, and foreign government operations that are tenants in Trump real estate in New York. That's prior to his election, but continuing through his presidency. It's not clear how courts will treat the lawsuit. This is unprecedented. Federal judges have often tossed complaints by members of Congress against the president, arguing political disputes should be fought in the political arena not the courthouse. But a federal judge in Washington has allowed a lawsuit to proceed against President Obama filed by the U.S. House over Obamacare payments he was making despite Congress' refusal to appropriate the money. So we'll see what happens with... um with this one, but you can add that to the stack of distractions that will very likely prevent uh, this Congress from a- accomplishing much or this administration from achieving uh, what its uh, agenda items happen to be. Well, in one of the first major primary races after the 2016 presidential election, a Republican candidate for governor who campaigned on a pro-Trump platform nearly pulled off an upset while a Democrat candidate who cast himself in Bernie Sanders' progressive mold lost. Candidates perceived by some as establishment won both in the Democratic and Republican primaries in Virginia for governor on Tuesday. But another takeaway is that the polls, which predicted a nail-biter for Democrats and a blowout on the Republican side, were as wrong as the polls were for the November 8th general election, raising some real questions about what the use of these polls might in fact be. Well, the real national takeaway was on the Republican side more than the Democrat side, says Quentin Kidd, a political science professor at Christopher Newport University, who's director of the Wasson Center for Public Policy. A Washington Post poll in May showed a significant lead in the GOP governor's race, 37 percent to 12 percent for Ed Gillespie, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, over Corey Stewart, chairman of the Prince William County Board of Supervisors, who was state chairman of President Donald Trump's 2016 campaign. State Senator Frank Wagner of Virginia Beach had 13 percentage points, actually outperforming Stewart. One candidate wrapped himself in Donald Trump flag, running against the opponent uh, with a huge advantage at the polls. Just as there were some shy Trump voters, I think there were also shy Stewart voters. Well, unofficial final results from the race after all this uh, speculation had Gillespie only squeaking by Stewart with 43.7% of the vote, 42.5%. Wagner finished with 13.8%. Well, on the Democratic side, the Virginia governor's race, that that same post poll um, showed former U.S. Representative uh, Tom Periello, a progressive with an active backing of Sanders, the Democratic Socialist Senator from Vermont, leading Lieutenant Governor Ralph Northam for 35% to 29%. But in the end, Northam won 55.9% of the vote, Perelio 44.1%. The upstart's loss came after Senator Elizabeth Warren did a TV commercial for him, and several Obama administration alumni endorsed him. Uh, Northam, the Democrat, will face Republican Gillespie in the general election November 7th. Now, these races that come somewhere in between the midterm elections are supposed to give us something of a snapshot, a glimpse into what we might expect uh, when the midterm elections do, in fact, um, arrive. It's supposed to tell us something about the general public's view of how the president is performing. That isn't always the case, but nonetheless, these predictions that came out prior to the actual Uh, balloting uh, proved once again to be, well, wrong. 
Coach Joe Kennedy took his fight to be allowed to pray silently on the football field to court this week, appealing to a bench with a liberal reputation. It's the Ninth Circuit. My hope is that at the end of the day, the court will let me get back to the sidelines and back with my team, Kennedy said in a statement after his appearance in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. In late October of 2015, you might recall, he lost his job with the Bremerton High School football program in Bremerton, Washington, after administrators repeatedly told the Marine veteran to stop praying on the 50-yard line. Kennedy's lawyers argued before a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit Court in Seattle asking the judges to overturn a U.S. District Court ruling against him, also in Tacoma. His lawyers want the appeals court to order the Bremerton School District to stop discriminating against Kennedy based on his brief, his brief private religious expression. He went alone. He didn't invite teammates to come with him. He just did it on his own, and they are asking that they reinstate him. Well, the superintendent of the Bremerton School District first told Kennedy in September of 2015 that he had to stop praying because the public display of religion by a public school employee could be misconstrued as the district's endorsement of religion. The school district said it based its decision on the Supreme Court's 2000 ruling in Santa Fe Independent School District versus Doe. Well, Kennedy is not seeking monetary damages, saying he wants to be back on the sidelines, coaching his players while maintaining his First Amendment rights. In response to questions from the three judges on where the line is between private and public prayers, one of Kennedy's lawyers, Rebecca Ricketts, said the coach never coerced students to participate in his 15 to 30 second prayer on the on or off the field. The school district attorney, Michael Tierney, he argued that teachers and coaches do have influence over students, whether subtle or not. So Tierney said teachers and coaches must refrain from religious expression that could be perceived as coercive or risk violating the establishment cause. Well, the uh, judges questioned why the school district didn't take action earlier since this had been Kennedy's ongoing practice since 2008, shortly after he was hired. Tyranny said district officials had thought Kennedy was making an inspirational speech to the crowd gathered around him on the field. The Ninth Circuit has a disputed reputation as one of the most liberal courts in the nation. If the appeals court allows the lower court's ruling to stand, it essentially will be affirming the school district's discrimination and affecting millions of Americans, especially teachers. Jeremy Dice, senior counsel for First Liberty, our guest here last uh, or actually yesterday, they represent Kennedy and the oral arguments. In a telephone interview with the Daily Signal, Dice said the lower court ruling also would mean that the Muslim teacher cannot wear her hijab, the Jewish teacher teacher cannot wear his yarmulke. The Catholic teacher cannot wear her crucifix to work. It would be an expression that would uh, could be assumed to be uh, endorsement. This is an overwhelming burden on the free exercise of religion by a free people in the United States that ought to be rejected, he said. I just want the ability to go back out there and help these young men and also have my constitutional rights that I fought for in the Marine Corps for 20 years, Kennedy, the coach said in his telephone interview last year with the Daily Signal. That's it. It's pretty simple. Well, prior to losing his job, he served as head coach for the junior varsity football team and assistant coach for the varsity football team for seven years. In a video created by First Liberty Institute, Kennedy hints at his own rough childhood and says he believes that all the hard times I had in my life were really setting the stage for exactly this battle that I'm fighting right now. And he added, and that's why I really love coaching. It's because I understand what those kids are going through. Kennedy says he chose to fight the legal battle because... We need to fight for our freedoms. We need to fight for the things that are right in society and for America. We'll continue to follow the story to find out what the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals says. My guest is, guess rather, is if they rule against him, it won't be the final word, but we'll just have to wait and see. 
30 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk about the book, Start With Amen, How I Learned to Surrender by Keeping the End in Mind. Beth Guckenberger, my next guest. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out that for centuries, millions of Christians have been concluding their prayers with a very familiar word. Amen. However, missionary Beth Guckenberger realized by waiting until the end of her prayers to say, so be it, she was missing the depth and meaning this familiar word offered. Now, did you even know that's what it meant? We just say it because, well, that's where it goes at the end. Well, in her new book, Start With Amen, How I Learned to Surrender by Keeping the End in Mind, she finds that the Bible is full of passages where God's children began prayers with amen. Um, if you've ever, uh, she began rather to wonder how her life and relationship with God would change if she started her prayers with the word that usually ends them. What if when I didn't like what was happening, I prayed in anticipation of the Lord's hand, confident of his sovereignty, she says. What if instead of second guessing him, my prayers sounded more like amen. So be it. This happened. It was all, it's all good. I'm yours. Change my heart. Take captive my thoughts. All I have is in your hands. Bless the thief, dear Jesus. Well, it goes on from there. My guest is Beth Guckenberger. She is a gifted writer. She has written seven books, all of which are based in storytelling and draw from her vast field experience as a missionary, Bible teacher, and parent. She has a unique way of unpacking the deep truths of Scripture in a way that helps you truly connect with what God is saying. She lives in Cincinnati, Ohio with her family. She and her husband, Todd, um, uh, are co-executive directors of Back-to-Back Ministries, an international orphan care ministry serving abandoned, orphaned, and impoverished children. Uh, she uh, joins us today to talk about her book, Start With Amen, How I Learned to Surrender by Keeping the End in Mind. Thank you so much for joining us, Beth. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me today. Well, this is such an interesting study, first of all, because I think many of us use the word without really understanding what it means. So maybe we should begin by talking about what amen, amen, however you want to pronounce it, what it means, what we're saying when we use that word. Absolutely. You know, it does mean um, as simply defined as so be it. Sometimes in Scripture we can uh, translate it as truly, truly, or verily, verily, but it's it's this assignment of what that God is what God is saying is true and that it, it can be trusted. It's really a word that signifies his sovereignty. And when we use it in prayer, whether it's at the beginning or the end or anywhere in the middle, we're acknowledging that sovereignty and our surrender and trust and confidence in it. So it doesn't just mean the end. <laughs> yeah. Sign off ten four. No it in fact you were quoting a prayer in in your introduction that prayer that I prayed that had all those phrases in it, including bless the thief, which I know doesn't make sense outside of context, mm-hmm. is, how, is how the whole exercise began for me. It, it's really more than just a way that I pray. It became a lifestyle, but it all started because I was living as a missionary for 15 years in a foreign country, and I had a purse stolen. A purse I probably had no business even owning in the first place. I, it, it was... It was something that I bought one day on an impulse whim when I was in the United States, and it was not very practical for my lifestyle. It was purple and suede and and cost more than I needed to be spending in that season of life. And it was stolen out of my front seat of my car when I jumped out of it for about a minute to tell my son where I was parked in a parking lot. And 
I was so upset when it was stolen. I was beating myself up for even owning it in the first place. And I, I almost, just to, just to be vulnerable with your listeners, honestly, in my broken theology, I punished myself, really, in the aftermath of that and started carrying my 8-year-old daughter's purse, just not, not wanting to spend any more money on something like that. I came to the United States to speak at a church, and I realized as I was landing in that airplane, how silly I looked carrying a little girl's purse on my shoulder. So I pulled into this strip mall, and there wasn't any, like, obvious place to buy a purse, but there was a luggage store, and I ran in there to see if I could find something, and they had this, like, leather backpack purse that I thought was kind of a perfect fit for what what I was doing for her. Um, in Mexico, and so I went up to the counter to buy it, and it was almost $300, and I was like, oh, no, I've already learned this lesson once. I'm not doing this again, and I leave that store without any purchase. Later that night, after I finished speaking at a church, I drove to my mom's house in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I was going to spend the night, and I hadn't had, I hadn't been there since my last birthday, so there were some packages and cards that had collected there, and I was opening up one of those packages, and then one of them was from my college roommate. And when I opened it up, my hand flew to my mouth because it was that leather backpack I had just held in my hand a few hours before. Oh, my goodness. And I said to the Lord, you are always reintroducing yourself to me because I was so sure you did not care about purses. And uh, it was kind of like you whispered to me, "I, I care about what you care about. And I just, like, my mind was, like, racing. Like, my roommate and I had never exchanged gifts that generous before. I now realize she purchased that purse probably before mine was even stolen. And, I, and that night when I laid in bed, I thought, Lord, you are actually already actively in, you actively were working on behalf of something that I, it hadn't even happened yet. And then I spent a lot of emotional energy directed in the wrong place. And I thought, what if in all the other areas of my life that I was, wringing my hands about a child or a work situation or a relationship or whatever. What if I trusted you were already working on my behalf and I don't need to beg you or manipulate you or remind you? What if I just started my prayer with that so be it sound in my voice? Like, I trust you. You're sovereign. You already have it, whatever it is. And that night, that was the first night I prayed with the first word being amen. And then I just said all the things I normally said, confess my sins and told them what I was concerned about. And I finished my prayer that night, acknowledging who it was that I was talking to. And I just said, oh, dear Jesus. And I realized I had inverted my prayers. And, and that was about a decade ago. And everything that's happened in my, my faith walk in the last decade, I just knew I wanted to capture it in a way that I could share with others. Mm-hmm. You write about having an orphan spirit. Describe what that means and how that impacts the relationship that we have with our father. So my day job is working um, with orphans and vulnerable children around the world. So at first I thought an orphan spirit was tied to whether or not we had biological parents who are raising us or not. But really an orphan spirit doesn't have anything to do with whether or not we're being raised with our family of origin. An orphan spirit is that sense that we're not enough for God, or even worse, that God's not enough for us, that that everything that we have access to is children of God, patience and wisdom and mercy and love and self-control and all the good gifts He has for us, that they're for everybody else but not us, and that we need to work harder or ask more often or manipulate or beg or complain or any of those things to the Father in order to get Him to maybe look our way, to pay attention to what it is that we're worried about. And when I started to think about, there's a story in the book about 
who introduced me to Orphan Spirit and how that even came into my life and in my vocabulary. But I realized that the way that we pray is directly related to the way we understand our relationship with God. And if I understand that I'm a co-heir with Christ, that He's called me a child of Him, that I don't have to see myself any longer as an orphan. I now belong to someone who has everything at his fingertips and who wants to give me what I need in order for me to accomplish what he's asked me to do. You write about an important distinction between what it means to believe in God and to believe God. Um, Talk a little bit about that distinction and the impact that it has on the way we live and certainly our understanding of of God as as, uh, he relates to us as his children. Yeah, more than three decades ago, I prayed to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and that was the day that I started to believe in God, where I knew that He was my Savior and that He'd come to die um, on the cross for my sins and wanted me to be in His family. And I hope that um, those that are in your listening audience have made a decision like that and that they believe in God and His power and His Word and what He, and what he has. But I was realizing... I, my husband and I have 10 children, and I was living in a foreign country, and all kinds of moments in life. Just even being married for more than 20 years, you got all kinds of days when you think, I, I can't do it. I'm not enough. I don't have what I, I don't have what it takes. And I was reading my Bible, I was studying my Bible, and I was thinking, I see all these examples in here of where you come through and come for and come to your kids and pick them up and and to do all these incredible things. And I want to believe that you can do that in my life. I don't want to just believe in the fact that you have done that. I want to believe that you can do that and will do that and want to do that. And I just started asking God to act like God. And I stopped trying to pretend like I was God-like. And I, I think there was, there have been some major changes in the way that I talk to Him and what I ask of Him and what I see Him do in my life because I'm quick to admit where it is that I fall short. Mm. Now, for those who are in very difficult circumstances where it seems that God is silent, it's difficult to trace his hand of of mercy and provision, it can be difficult to begin praying amen with the understanding that you are affirming what God is doing. Talk a little bit about the challenge of being in that situation uh, and still affirming who you know to be, you know, who you know God to be, because we know what the scriptures tell us in the absence of what seems to be personal evidence. Yes, I think that, you know, for me, one of the things that I realized was, um, well, I lost my father 21 years ago, and that was the first time that I realized that Christians have to become fluent in hard things, that being a Christian doesn't exempt us from hard storylines. We have wayward children and financial crises and bodies that fall apart and people we love that die. Those storylines still enter into our life. And we can either ask God to conform His will into ours, and, and, and I think that when my dad died, I really... I struggled with the fact that I had seen God up until that point like a genie God, like I was supposed to rub his belly and he was going to pop out and give me three wishes. And if he didn't, then I was somehow mad at him or or didn't or, or complaining of what it was that he had planned. But I realized in the aftermath of my father's death, it's not that God is supposed to be conformed to our will, but that we're supposed to be conformed to His. And it's a will I don't often understand, and I can't get my arms around, and I don't even always like. 
And so for me, starting a prayer with amen is just my acknowledgement that no matter what you see in my heart, my, my frustration, my pain, my jealousy or envy or lust or anger or fear or any of those negative emotions that at any point can show up in my heart and mind, even well, no matter what you see, Lord, I promise, I trust that you have a pen in your hand and you're writing something bigger than what I, what I can see mm, right now. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, the book we're talking about, Start With Amen. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book Start With Amen. Beth Guckenberger is my guest. The subtitle, How I Learned to Surrender by Keeping the End in Mind. Now, in the book, you write about the fact that uh, amen is, uh, is complete dependence. And in your chapter on the benefits of amen, it's important to, to think about what... What difference will it make for me if I do what your subtitle suggests, and that is uh, learn to surrender by keeping the end in mind? What are some of the benefits of of uh, so be it? You know, the the loss of control, the, the desire to put things in God's hands has brought tremendous freedom in my life and even a sense of lightness. Despite the circumstances going on around me, in, in one of the um, chapters I talk about how we had a precious foster daughter who I loved very much and who had been in our home for many years, who ran away. And she was a teenager, and in the aftermath of her leaving, I was crushed. I, I'd never had anything like it. I'd never felt a loss like that before, a sense of failure. It was like a terrible circumstance. I was in, um, I suppose you could call it prayer. I don't think I was saying very much. I was just quietly sitting with the Lord, probably day two or three, in lots of emotional pain. And I don't, I don't, again, I don't know if your listeners have experienced pain like that before in their own family or with loss of relationship, but I was just crushed. And I was listening um, to my own thinking, and I had this verse came up to my mind that I had memorized at one point. My mom used to tell me when I was growing up that I should read Psalm 91.1, the 911 verse in a crisis, and it talks about how we can rest in the shelter of the shadow of the Almighty. So I was just asking the Lord to shadow me, to be my shelter, and I realized as I was listening to that and thinking about that verse that I had put myself as this little girl's shelter. I had put myself as her shade, and I was afraid that in my absence she was unsheltered or unshaded. When, in fact, God had always been her shelter in shade. He had used me for a season, but he was not going to leave her. And in that, in all of that thinking that was happening there at ground zero of that hard storyline, there was this sense of like, okay, God, so you have it. You have her. You see her, you love her, you're pursuing her, you'll bring her to me when it's the right time, you'll protect her when she's not with me, you you have this. And even though the circumstances didn't change, she didn't burst through my door in that moment, there was this sense of lightness, of freedom from control or anxiety or fear or anger or any of those things that could have dominated that storyline. And I think that's the biggest benefit to praying um, a prayer that starts with amen, that, that we can trust that God is in control, and that he's the author and perfecter of our faith. Mm, and again, the meaning of the word, uh, one way to put it is, so be it. You write mm-hmm. about barriers to uh, agreeing with God and recognizing his sovereign hand over the affairs of uh, us as individuals and the affairs of others as as well. Um, what are some of these barriers uh, to amen, and how do we address them? How do we confront them and get past them? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think unconfession is our number one barrier, Mm. that sense of pride that says that my way is the best way and my way of thinking is the only way and certainly the right way. 
and not um, humbling ourselves. Really, if I prayed no other word ever again in my whole life, that word amen creates space. It's like a, it creates this beautiful pregnant pause before I say everything I'm going to say in my prayer. And in that pregnant pause, that, that vacuum that gets created, God's presence can fill. And God's been telling us all throughout the Old Testament and certainly in Acts um, when the presence of the Holy Spirit comes, that if we make room for Him in our lives, He'll come and fill that space we create. I love it when He tells Moses when He's building the tabernacle, just make a space for me and I'll come and fill it. And I think He says the same thing to us today. If you just make room for me, I'll come and fill that space. I'll come and fill that room. And so the barriers to living is deciding I'm going to fill that space. Um, first, I'm not going to make the space. But if I do make the space, I'm going to fill it with something other than God. I'm going to fill it with other people's opinions. I'm going to fill it with my own negative emotions. I'm going to fill it with, um, you know, outside noise and influence. But if we make space for God, He wants to come in that space. And once that presence of the Holy Spirit is felt in our life, then whatever it is that we're talking to Him about in prayer can be put in perspective. Mm. You um, write about the first steps to amen, that, that position of, of saying, so be it, even before we know the outcome. How do we begin? What are those first steps that will help us mm-hmm. to make that journey? Can I talk a little bit about when I, when I had the opportunity to study in Israel, and we were looking at this shepherd who had all these sheep and goats up on the hillside, and the sheep were literally walking in a straight line, which I didn't know that sheep walk in a straight line. I now know that the word that they use in Hebrew for the line that sheep walk on is the same phrase that we get, the passage, um, the translation of path of righteousness. Literally, sheep walk along the path of righteousness, and uh, we were watching this shepherd and these sheep, and there wasn't very much in the hill, so I was commenting to our guide, did we just not pick a very smart shepherd? Because I don't even know what those sheep are eating. And he told me to look under the rock, but the dew from the morning gets trapped under rocks, and there's a little tuft of grass. And the shepherd was walking along that path of righteousness, pointing out to the sheep where those little tufts of grass were hiding under the rocks, and the sheep are eagerly eating them and listening for that shepherd to point out the next tuft of grass. And that little patch of grass only lasted them a few steps before they swallowed it, and they were hungry for something else. And I said to everyone, nobody better be reading Psalm 23 right now, because when it talks about a shepherd leading us to the pasture, I'm thinking like a field full of waist-high alfalfa. I had no idea that the, the, the hillside that the shepherd was leading the sheep on were like David's were when he wrote that Psalm 23, and that really what God is offering to us if we stay in the path of righteousness is what we need perfectly for the next few steps. And we need to be in that place where we're listening again for what we need for the next few steps. And so I think some of those challenges come from understanding that the first few steps, God's going to give us what we need, and then He was looking for us to be in a posture of dependence. That that image I had in my mind of a field full of alfalfa meant, like, thank you, Jesus, for taking me to this field, but now I'm independent. I'll eat what I want, how much I want, where I want, how I want. Like, gosh, I'll do whatever I want. I might tell you thank you, but it's now all up to me. But that shepherd and sheep imagery was really a picture of total dependence. And I think when we walk this lifestyle, we recognize that God is 
God is God and we are not, and we're totally dependent on Him for each step. Oh, absolutely. Well, our time is almost up. I just want to mention that in the book, you also write about the benefits of Amen when, uh, as it uh, relates to the church, the family, and so on. Again, the titles start with Amen, How I Learned to Surrender by Keeping the End in Mind. Beth Guckenberger, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate you. Uh, the book, by the way, is uh, published by Thomas Nelson. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back five minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Rachel Alexander. She's writer for The Stream. We're going to talk about uh, new Clinton emails. Does anybody care? Is it relevant? What do they say? And what's likely to happen next? That's coming up later this hour. The New York Times editorial board, they jumped at the opportunity to politicize the shooting at the congressional baseball team practice in Alexandria yesterday. In fact, that game is going on right now. The editorial, which was published yesterday, attempted to blame conservatives for the incident and perpetuated the debunked conspiracy theory that Governor Sarah Palin incited the shooting of Representative Gabby Giffords. Well, we're going to talk about that with uh, Christian Roby. He is a political director at Newsbusters, an online watchdog site for the Media Research Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Georgine. Well, it's not surprising that the New York Times editorial board uh, took the issue up, but to to reference an already debunked story from 2011, I suppose, was surprising to just about anybody. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of surprising to them. It was a little schizophrenic, honestly, because um, as they as they themselves admitted, their news division said on the same day that that um, link between Gabby Giffords and Jared Lee Loughner was never established. So, you know, either they weren't talking or they didn't care or they were sloppy or something. It was enough where they issued a, a correction on their editorial today. And they, by the way, they changed the wording of the editorial. But it's just, you know, bizarre or incompetent or um, reckless. Well, it was interesting that they went back to 2011 to make a reference, that uh, a political link that didn't exist, and failed to make any uh, link to, that actually did exist in, in this particular case. What was the point yep. they were trying to make? Well, they they were trying to make the point that the left, including the media, which are, let's face it, they are virtually indistinguishable, that whenever there's uh, mass violence like this, it is always the right. But, you know, in fact... When you go back and you look at, um, including the 2011 uh, uh, Jared Lee Loughner shooting, when you go back and you look at the shooter, either A, he was connected to radical left-wing causes, like, for example, the Unabomber or um, the guy out in Colorado or uh, Jared Lee Loughner, uh, they are all have these radical Marxist, socialist uh, types of platforms. They're never rightist, but the media, that's where they immediately go. So in in this case, as you pointed out, the next day they did uh, retract that um, uh, reference to uh, the 2011 shooting. Uh, it was yeah. it, it was retracted. There was no apology made, um, uh, and there was no um, call for uh, less incite, uh, inciting um, rhetoric from the from the left. What do you make of the New York Times in terms of its credibility on this story and, and others related to this kind of event? Well, let me, let me say this. It's infuriating because as we just talked about, the, the whole media, and that includes the New York Times, and they did this at the time, they were within hours of the incident before the facts come pouring in because it's more important to get the news out there than it is for it to be right. 
they will latch on to the idea that such and such a guy was a Tea Party activist or that he was um, inspired by Sarah Palin's uh, map at the time without the facts. Now, what is so infuriating to me about this is here in this case with this man who perpetrated this horrible act of violence yesterday and who has grievously injured, uh, seriously injured a U.S. representative. He has, there are mountains of evidence connecting this guy to the left. I mean, he was a volunteer on the Bernie Sanders campaign. He marched in uh, protests. He was a member of all these vile Facebook pages. You never hear that. And, you know, um, if you do, it's, it's in passing. It's infuriating. Well, it certainly does give uh, a deliberate impression that uh, you're absolutely right. Only one segment of the population is responsible for these kinds of violent um, outbursts. Now, the New York Times is rarely taken to task, but are you seeing a response from the media, generally speaking, pointing out the error in the uh, New York Times coverage of the story? Or are you seeing the same kind of thing being repeated elsewhere? Well, no, no one really, this was a rookie mistake on the part of the New York Times. I mean, there there were some um, reporters, especially on Twitter, who were politicizing uh, the shooting, and they were using it as a platform to talk about gun control, which, by the way, was incredibly uninformed. I mean, some of this was just fallacious, some of their talking points. You saw some of that. What you didn't see was this talking point that has been debunked about, specifically about Sarah Palin, who they still owe an apology to. So um, no one has gone after the New York Times in the mainstream media. Um, who who did go after them, thank goodness, is we have the conservative media and we have Twitter. So you have the Examiner going after them. You have uh, National Review Online. You have others. Uh, thank goodness that they're there because they were the watchdogs in this case that, that I think, um, I think MRC contributed to this. I think that they were the ones who pushed the New York Times to, to make that correction. Are we seeing a general call after events yesterday for um, uh, moving away from incendiary political rhetoric? I don't know. I don't. You know, you you, you hear. You're, are you talking about across the board? Across the board. There's some. Is there some type of universal? You know, you saw it up on Capitol Hill, right? I mean, you saw Nancy Pelosi and Paul Ryan and Chuck Schumer and the president and everybody. You know, first of all, everyone likes uh, Steve Scalise. You know, I mean, he's a very well liked colleague up on Capitol Hill. Um, now, in the media, in civic areas, in groups. You know, I think that we are a very divided country, and I I don't think that the media does where there are calls to such um, to such a reconciliation and to toning down the rhetoric. The media needs to do a better job in reporting that. I'm not even saying that they need to be a cheerleader, but you know, they can't flame the 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 fire of passion here because it makes good news. They need to report the fact that, yes, there are groups, including people up on Capitol Hill, but citizen groups on the, the left and the right who want to calm things down. They need to report that. And I don't think they are. Well, we'll certainly continue to follow what uh, what happens next. My guess is the, the warm and fuzzy feelings that we heard expressed yesterday will soon dissipate. And we'll be back to where we were before. In fact, I've read far too many comments um, in social media, for example, saying one down uh, and then more to go. It, it, it's sad that that's, that seems to be where we are. And for some, this was not something to be grieved over, um, but just the first of what they hope uh, will be 
uh, an example of uh, others to follow? You know, I hope not. I, I yeah. was talking with some colleagues around the water cooler today, and, um, you know, you, you just look back at the, your history book in the 20th century, and you start thinking about some, what were some of the major um, turning points in the United States in the 20th century, or maybe even going back to the Civil War. Has the United States ever been, this is not a rhetorical, rhetorical flourish on my part, has it ever been this divided since the Civil War? And I think maybe, maybe it has, but I'm not sure about that. I mean, when, when you get to the point where, you know, you are talking, the type of quotes that you're talking about are not anecdotal, but they're representative. And, there is an issue going on here. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the weapons in our arsenal to disagree with one another have certainly expanded dramatically. Uh, social media, uh, the mainstream media and so on have made it much easier, I think, to... Uh, to fan the flames in ways that previous generations mm-hmm. did not uh, did not have. Well, it certainly uh, encourages me to pray for those in leadership and for our country in general. We need help. Amen. And you know, I think that uh, that prayer, boy, that is that's a very appropriate avenue to go down because if ever we needed the Almighty, um, you know, now is the time. And it, it's not merely look. What is the background here? And every, I think that everyone knows this, but no one really wants to think about it too much. It's like a tinderbox. The background is the war on terror and North Korea and our relationship um, with Russia and the, um, the, the current battle between both sides, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, and liberals, regarding immigrants. And th- this all is happening within a very turbulent time. So... I think that the calls to um, to toning things down and the petitions to you know to uh, some type of unanimity, you know, especially to to God, I think that they're very apropos. Yeah, it's certainly timely. Hey, thank you so much for talking with us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. Again, Christian Roby is the political director at Newsbusters. Up next, we'll talk with Rachel Alexander. She writes for the Stream. Some new emails have appeared. What difference does it make now? Well, we'll find out. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there are new um, Hillary Clinton emails that have emerged. And while there's been a bit of controversy and a little anger over the fact that a decision was made by the current administration not to pursue uh, charges against Hillary Clinton, there are some uh, there is rather some new information that might uh, cause others to revisit that question. Here to talk with us about these new Hillary Clinton emails and the scandal that could get worse is um, my guest, Rachel Alexander. She writes for The Stream. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Now, Judicial Watch apparently released some 2,078 pages of documents revealing more instances in which the uh, former Secretary of State sent and received classified information via that unsecured email server that we're all so familiar with today. How significant is this, and how did they acquire those documents? You know, they put in a request, a public records request, for the documents from the State Department, because we all knew that, you know, Hillary Clinton hasn't turned over all the emails that she should have, and so we knew we weren't getting the full picture. And I think they actually had to file a lawsuit because it was uh, so difficult getting these emails, but they finally gotten, I think they're up to 433 new emails that no one's ever seen before of Hillary Clinton's, and there are some very serious uh, you know, uh, leaks of classified information in there. I mean, several, and, and, and Judicial Watch goes over them. 
Now, James Comey decided that criminal charges were not appropriate because it didn't she didn't intend uh, to uh, make information available that should not have been. Uh, some folks at the uh, um, at the Justice Department were frustrated by that or the FBI were frustrated by that and made uh, their disagreement known. What at this point, if anything, can be done and what might this mean? Well, there's no reason why the uh, F- FBI can't resume, you know, a serious investigation of her at this point. And, you know, as I understand, they still are looking into it. Um, they just haven't taken it to a different level. And they could come back and recommend charges. As, you know, as we know, President Trump said he fired Comey in part because Comey usurped the uh, position of the attorney general and said, I'm recommending no charges uh, against Hillary Clinton, when that wasn't his place to do so. And I'd like to point out as well, he, there didn't need to be intent. You know, people were yeah. prosecuted for leaking classified information who, who they never even showed intent. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, the, the charges that this most recent leaker who was uh, very intent on exposing uh, classified information. She is being charged with the very same charges that the Secretary of State would be charged with or was exonerated uh, of by the former FBI director. Well, that's the thing. And, you know, with a lot of this, these emails that Hillary Clinton has, has leaked, to say that not a single one of them, and there's hundreds, if not thousands, of, you know, emails that she's, she's leaked like this, how can you say there was no intent? Really, Hillary, when you send over all this information to your buddies at the Clinton Foundation, people who did not have security clearances, as we've discovered in this latest round of emails, what do you mean there's not intent to share that classified information with them? Yeah, there's no hostile intent, perhaps, but she certainly uh, was uh, open to sharing information with people who did not have the clearance to see it. Now, what have we learned from these uh, more recent emails, and why should it matter? Well, one of the worst ones was, uh, you know, the, the Democrats keep accusing the Trump people of colluding with the Russians when these email exchanges that came out revealed that Huma Abedin was helping Hillary set up a quid pro quo uh, were the Russians. Um, basically, it was a, a request from um, the Russian-American Foundation. Um, they wanted uh, help with public diplomacy. And um, let's see, how did they exactly do this? Um, the foundation received more than $260,000 in grants for public diplomacy from the State Department during Clinton's tenure. And Abedin was the one who arranged it. So for the average um, listener who followed the, the Clinton thing because she her name was at the top of the ticket for the Democrats, she wanted to be the next president. This was really important. Why should they care now? And um, should a former secretary of state, um, a former U.S. senator, a former first lady uh, be held to the same standard as you and I if we were to engage in similar activity? I would argue that she should even be held to a higher standard because she had the absolute highest level of security clearance you can get. I think it's called SOP, where you are supposed to know better than your average person with a security clearance, you know, the delicacy of the information that you are handling. Instead, she's being held to a lower standard. She doesn't even need to show intent or... Yeah, they're making her, you know, show intent in order to uh, say that she's guilty. And then they ignore all this evidence that I think is intent. Now, the former FBI director uh, said it didn't rise to the level of uh, criminality because of the lack of intent. 
Um, there will be a new FBI director. Um, is it likely that this would be revisited with the, the prospect of criminal charges or would it be considered too highly politically charged at this point in our already volatile environment? And given the fact that the candidate, Donald Trump, said that, uh, you know, lock her up was a major theme of his campaign, later decided uh, not to, to pursue uh, criminal charges against her. Well, I just think the evidence just continues to pile up. I, at some point, they're going to think it's unavoidable that they're they're going to have to start looking into her criminally. You know, you've got multiple fronts investigating her. It's not just Judicial Watch, but you've got Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, who's been digging into, you know, why did she have a security clearance still? She hasn't even been in the Homeland uh, Department of State for, you know, a couple of years. And uh, yet she's, she's still got the security clearance, and they've reclassified her and her former assistants as research assistants. So the hanky-panky just continues to come out. And, you know, my personal opinion is, is I bet people are afraid to mess with the Clintons, and that's the other half of the reason why um, no one's going after her right now. Well, the other part of the story is you've got a president who's facing a number of challenges of his own. We have the emoluments. Uh, suit that uh, some members of the House have now filed against the president. Uh, you have the uh, the special counsel, uh, at least according to the Washington Post, that sometimes can be believed, uh, is going to broaden his investigation into whether or not uh, there was obstruction of justice on the part of the uh, the president. And, and so he's got lots of other uh, eggs to fry, if you will. Um, so I, I'm guessing he may not be as uh, aggressive in moving forward, uh, revisiting the Clinton email scandal, w- which is the right way to describe it. Yeah, that is true. I mean, you know, the left is trying to just completely circle this president with, you know, frivolous, you know, attacks and put him on the defensive. And so he is going to have less energy and less time to focus on this. But again, he's replacing people, you know, in the Department of Justice and the FBI with his people, with better people. You know, some of the load can be taken off of him. He doesn't have to sit there and try to press Comey. You know, you hey, you out of control, you know, investigative, you know, prosecutor, detective. You've got to just stop and quit going on a fishing expedition trying to find collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia because there's no evidence. And, you know, Comey still wouldn't stop. So I think Trump is going to get some better people in there and they can take some of that burden off of him. I know one of the things that the uh, just the uh, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton said that these shocking new Clinton emails show why the Justice Department should reevaluate, reopen or reinvigorate Clinton Inc. investigations. Uh, he went on to say the casual violation of laws concerning classified material and noxious influence peddling show the Clinton State Department was corruption central in the Obama administration. No wonder Clinton's allies in the state and justice departments have been slow walking and hiding these emails. So if no Nobody else moves forward. Perhaps Judicial Watch will continue to press the issue and force the hand of whomever uh, is uh, occupying and overseeing uh, the FBI. Yeah, and don't forget either, you've got the DOJ Inspector General Michael Horowitz. He's begun looking into the FBI's handling of the Clinton email probe. Um, he's going to look into claims that the FBI improperly disclosed non-public information, and he's going to look into whether officials like acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe should have removed themselves from the probe. Because he's also been, you know, a reluctant one to go after Hillary. So this is being looked into on multiple fronts. And I think, in my opinion, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Well, we will certainly continue to follow the story, and I appreciate your joining us to help us do that. Thanks for having me on, Georgie. Thank you so much. Again, uh, Rachel Alexander writes for 
the stream. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break, but we will be right back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, uh, Michigan's health department director and four other officials involved in the Flint lead contaminated water were charged on Wednesday with involuntary manslaughter. That's the most serious charges to date in the criminal investigation. Nick Lyon was accused of misconduct in office and involuntary manslaughter, becoming the highest ranking member of Governor Rick Snyder's administration to be targeted in that criminal probe. And the manslaughter charges carried a penalty of up to 15 years in prison and a $7,500 fine, while the misconduct charge carries a prison sentence of up to five years and a $10,000 fine. Lyon is a former Flint emergency manager. Um, Darren Early, uh, former Michigan uh, Department of Environmental Quality drinking water chief. Uh, Leon Schechter Smith, state water supervisor Stephen Bush, and former Flint Water Department manager Howard Croft are accused of failing to alert the public about an outbreak of Legionnaires' disease in the Flint area. Uh, Early, Schechter Smith, Bush, and Croft already have been charged with less serious crimes. Uh, There were 12 deaths. 79 other people were sickened by the Legionnaire's disease in 2014-2015, which some experts have linked to the uh, contamination of the water after the city switched to Flint River water in April of 2014. Now, one legal expert said the aggressive manslaughter charges will be challenging to prove to juries, and that may in fact be the case. But even filing those particular charges... Um, which make it more difficult, apparently, uh, to convict, do send a strong signal. Uh, Michigan Attorney General Bill Shute, he remained undeterred and indicated during a press conference yesterday that he's continuing not to rule out possible charges against Snyder himself. That's, of course, Governor Rick Snyder. Uh, When asked uh, why he was not charged thus far, Uh, The attorney general said that uh, no crime has been established and we are not filing charges at this time, leaving the door open. Lyon and four others failed to protect the residents of Flint, uh, the attorney general shoot said. He was joined by uh, the Genese County prosecutor David Layton, special prosecutor Todd Flood and investigator Andy Arena. Lyon's uh, failure to act resulted in the death of at least one person, 85-year-old Robert Skidmore of Janese Township, the attorney general said. Well, Skidmore's death certificate shows that he died on the 13th of December in 2015 from end-stage congestive heart failure. Only diabetes is listed as a contributing cause of death of Skidmore, uh, according to the certificate. But the charging document indicates that a McFarland Flint hospital doctor on June of the 2nd of 2015 collected a sample from Skidmore that tested positive for Legionnaire or Legionella, as they call it, and that the Janese County Medical Examiner will not refute the medical doctor's findings of Legionnaire's disease was a cause of Robert Skidmore's death, certainly a contributor to it. Well, the state chief medical officer, Dr. Eden Wells, was charged Wednesday with obstruction of justice and lying to a police officer. The obstruction charge carries a prison term of up to two years. Wells' lawyer was not uh, uh, available to comment, but people have uh, died because of the decisions people made, the attorney general said. There are two types of people in the world, These uh, those who give um, uh, give a darn and those who don't, he went on to say, this is a case where there has been willful disregard for the health and safety of others. Well, Lyon uh, attorneys uh, Chip Chamberlain and Larry Wheely uh, fired back that the uh, cause appears to be a misguided theory looking for facts that do not exist. 
To that point, we're uh, witnessing, or rather, we've witnessed numerous press conferences by the prosecution that have been intentionally prejudicial to the process and unfair to those targeted. Worse yet, they have made many statements that are completely false. We expect the court system to vindicate him entirely. Well, email records released by the uh, uh, Snyder administration, again, the governor of the state, show that Mr. Lyon was aware of the spike in Legionella bacteria that causes Legionnaire's disease, a form of pneumonia, as early as January of 2015, but didn't put out a public alert. Snyder informed the public about the Legionnaire's outbreak in January of 2016. That's a full year later. Lyons has said he knew about Legionnaire's for months, but wanted to wait until investigators in the Health and Human Services Department finished their own probe. Well, Snyder fired back at uh, uh, the attorney general's office while keeping Lyon and Wells on the job, telling the health and human services employees in an email that I am standing behind Nick and Eden. Um, That's the governor, of course. Well, Director Lyon and Dr. Eden Wells, like every other person who has been charged with a crime by Bill Shute, the attorney general, are presumed innocent unless or until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, Snyder wrote in his statement. Some state employees were charged over a year ago and have uh, been suspended from work since that time. They still have not had their day in court. That is not justice for Flint nor uh, for those who have been charged. The director, uh, Lyon, and Dr. Wells have been and continue to be instrumental in Flint's recovery, the governor went on to say. And again, while no criminal charges have yet been filed, though the attorney general and others present indicated that um, that is for the time being. Uh, so these um, uh, these charges have now been filed. We do hear that uh, the there are some hurdles to be faced. We won't go into them right now, but this is the latest in the progress toward resolving issues for the uh, the so-called Flint water crisis, as it came to be known, uh, that lasted for far too long and did uh, far too much damage. Uh, pinpointing who is ultimately responsible has been the subject of much uh, conversation and speculation since that point. We talked earlier today about um, the uh, shooting and the highly charged rhetoric that preceded it and who's to blame, the finger pointing and so on. Ultimately, the individual who stood behind that weapon and pulled the trigger is responsible. But the question is, and particularly in this case, because there's no question that he was motivated by his by politics and that he targeted a particular group because of their political views, unlike the Gabby Giffords case, which is equally tragic. Um, but was was motivated by someone who we now know was had a schizophrenia, had no political connections whatsoever. Um, this is a, a bit different in terms of motivation. Dr. Michael Brown writing uh, on the subject uh, calls for responsible rhetoric in the media as well as social media, where our highly charged conversations can, in fact, incite uh, rather than inspire or cause uh, people to think perhaps more deeply and engage in civil conversation. Uh, Dr. Brown writes that was the shooting of Congressman Steve Scalise, along with four others, provoked by irresponsible reporting? Did the left-wing media so inflame its followers that a staunch Republican bashing, Trump-hating gunman decided it was time to act? Now, before you tune it out, I want to let you know he takes, uh, takes issue with both sides of the rhetorical Uh, uh, war that's going on, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But he goes on, according to InfoWars, the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, Quoting them, we have been warning for months that the mainstream media's hysterical anti-Trump narrative and the left's insistence that Trump's is illegitimate will radicalize demented social justice warriors and prompt them to lash out with violence. It looks like that's exactly what happened today. The blood is on their hands, end quote. 
But isn't this like a pot calling the kettle black? Dr. Brown goes on to say, has InfoWars, which represents an extreme right position, been any less inflammatory in its reporting? He goes on. I agree that the mainstream media's attacks on Trump have often been irresponsible to the point of being hysterical, as if Trump's presidency is a real and present threat to our survival, as if any day now he will draw us into a deadly nuclear war or make a decision that will destroy the world. Hollywood celebrities have been just as irresponsible, as I pointed out in the aftermath of Kathy Griffith's infamous beheading photo. Just look at the response to Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Accords. Writing for The Federalist, Bree Payton listed 15 over-the-top reactions to Trump's withdrawal from the Paris climate deal, including calling it a traitorous act of war, declaring that the world will end, and stating that Trump just declared war on the very idea of life on Earth. The headline on Huffington Post simply blared Trump to planet drop dead and all this for simply dropping out of a very flawed Paris Accord. Consider also the mixed reaction to the Shakespeare in the Park production of Julius Caesar, which includes the mock assassination of the president. While some media leaders condemned the play and some businesses withdrew their support, CNN's Fareed Zakaria tweeted, if you're in New York City, Go see Julius Caesar, free in Central Park, brilliantly interpreted for Trump era, a masterpiece. And as this writing, uh, as of this writing, Time Warner, CNN's parent company, had not pulled its financial support of the play. Can you imagine what the reaction would have been to a play that depicted the assassination of President Obama? Without a doubt, the mainstream media, in harmony with other voices on the left, has helped to create an environment of extreme Trump hatred. And while it's true that at times the president has been his own worst enemy, Does anyone really think that anti-Trump sentiments would be as intense as they are without the constant provocation of the media? The left already has blood on its hands, specifically the blood of a guard at FRC's Washington, D.C. headquarters. He was wounded by a gay gunman who planned to slaughter as many FRC employees, that's a Family Research Council, employees as possible, finding their office location with the help of the um, Southern Poverty Law Center's hate group map, which helped him target his anger. Yet the SPLC continues to irresponsibly label fine Christian organizations hate groups Most recently, the extremely important advocacy group, the ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Groups and individuals who confront radical Islam also find their way onto the Southern Poverty Law Center's lists, which only provokes further hatred and possibly violence. But it's not just the left that's guilty. We'll tell you more about that in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking about a call for responsible rhetoric in the media. Dr. Michael Brown, writing on the subject, points out that it's true on the right and the left. He reminded us of the wounded uh, uh, employee from the Family Research Council who was shot by a uh, gay gunman uh, who found the office location with the help of the Southern Poverty Law Center's um, hate group map. Uh, in which they've included groups that certainly do not fit that profile. Alliance Defending Freedom, for example, is on that map. But he goes on, but it's not just the left that is uh, guilty. Reporting on the right has often been irresponsible and inflammatory, to the point that I'm surprised we haven't seen more violent acts from those on the extreme right. Consider what Alex Jones, founder of InfoWars, had to say about Hillary Clinton during the last presidential campaign. She is, he writes, an abject psychopath demon from hell, 
that as soon as she gets up, uh, gets into power, is going to try to destroy the planet. I'm sure of that. And people around her say she's so dark now and so evil and so possessed that they are having nightmares. They are freaking out, end quote. Well, it goes on from there. Some of the things I wouldn't want to repeat on air, but you get the idea. It's not just the left. It's also on the right. Well, um, uh, Mr., uh, Mr. Brown goes on. I'm aware that Jones is far to the right of the mainstream conservative media, but he is uh, followed by millions, and his voice is just one of many on the right. And if InfoWars can blame the left-wing media for wounding Representative Scalise, he and others on the right need to ask themselves what they are provoking with their rhetoric. Is it producing responsible disagreement or irresponsible action? More broadly, if someone who is already upset with a current ruling party watches CNN or Fox News or reads blogs from the extreme left or right, will the rhetoric push them over the edge. And it's not just the professional media that need to ask this question. On the day of the shooting, I tweeted, today's shooting is a strong reminder that we in the media need to be responsible with our rhetoric, lest we further provoke the unstable. In response, one man added, the media is now all of us. Don't underestimate your influence. Use your voice responsibly. That's a word of warning to all of us. We need to think through the implications of what we post or tweet or record. Every day on the radio, I'm introduced as your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Again, I'm quoting uh, from Dr. Michael Brown, not speaking of myself. But he goes on, and over and over again, I explain just what we mean by revolution. Not a revolution of violence or anger or hatred or intimidation, but a Jesus revolution. A revolution where we overcome hatred with love, evil with good, lies with truth. And I repeat this over and over because I know how easy it is to provoke people in the flesh, adding bad fuel to a wildfire. Can we not provoke people to life-giving action, to good deeds rather than to murderous hatred? It's time we speak with greater responsibility, measuring our words carefully, considering the implications of our accusations, and pushing people to constructive rather than destructive action. The shooting of Representative Scalise and his colleagues is a warning to us all, and it ought to be a warning to us all. Uh, We all have the opportunity to play a part in the ongoing discourse uh, that takes place all around us, particularly in view of social media that plays such a significant role in our culture today. Well, taking a look at uh, next week, because I will be gone tomorrow as I'm uh, emceeing an event in uh, San Diego, Heidi and Jay St. John will be my guests. We're going to talk about the Christian Homeschool Resource Center that's just opening in Vancouver. On Tuesday, we'll talk with Rick Langer. He's the co-author of Winsome Persuasion. You don't want to miss that one. It really relates to what we've just been talking about. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Dr. Meg Meeker. The author is Hero, Being the Strong Father Your Family Needs. Since I'm not going to be here tomorrow, uh, the only day that's... um uh, pre, prior to Father's Day, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Meeker about this very important book on Wednesday. And then on Friday, we're looking forward to uh, to lightening things up. I mentioned in sort of a, uh, a roundabout way that uh, the conference that I'm going to be emceeing this weekend um, is one in which, and I'm not at liberty to, to go into much detail, but it's one that we know is going to be surrounded by protesters um, who have so inflamed one another, because I read what they're writing about the conference, uh, which does not reflect what's actually going to happen at the conference, that there is an element of danger. And I would just uh, ask you that you would pray for the safety of all those involved. It's a Christian conference, and I'll tell you more about it when I come back on Monday. Uh, so um, I, that's all I'm going to say at this point, but uh, would just 
encourage you to pray. The conference is Friday and Saturday in San Diego. Your prayers would be greatly appreciated. Our safety is ultimately in God's hands. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering, James Blind for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great, great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.